Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Okay, it's Basic Folk, a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. And if you don't know me, well, I'm Cindy Howes, and I host this podcast. Thanks so much for checking out the show today, and happy if you are not familiar with their music to introduce you to Corey Leitman. We'll get into a bit of what we talk about, but first, let's thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Winterbirds. Their new album, Shaker Songs, takes 18th and 19th century sacred texts from American shakers and puts it to all new progressive bluegrass compositions, exploring the poetry of this unique community. You can find Shaker Songs by Winterbirds on Bandcamp. Corey Leitman. Uh, Corey is a really interesting musician and person. Their music is vulnerable in a way that you rarely find in music. Not that it's uh, unheard of. Musicians like Deb Talon, Edie Carey, Patty Griffin come to mind uh, with a voice that basically encompasses all human emotions in 0.5 seconds. It's amazing. Corey's spirit is inspired by their vast imagination and connection to nature. We talk about it in the podcast about how um, humans are intrinsically connected to nature, but for most of us, that connection is not fully realized. Corey is gender neutral and uses them, they, their pronouns. They tell the story of how they came to that realization and also about the liberation they felt like across the board. I am so humbled uh, that they go into great detail about their struggle with an eating disorder uh, and to hear about their experience and how it also ties into a new freedom when it comes to clothing choices made me like rethink gender norms um, when it comes to the way we dress in a pretty incredible way. So I was listening back to the interview um, like a couple of weeks later after we did it, walking in the Boston Common. Um, hearing Corey talk about how female clothing was made to emphasize a thin female body and male clothing is just like clothing. Anyways, I was observing this point in real time. Um, this interview is really special and I feel like I'm looking at the world just a little bit differently uh, because of Corey, incredible human being and also fantastic musician. Hope you enjoy this conversation. We'll hear a clip from Marching Band and then get into our conversation with Corey Leitman on Basic Folk. We all know you never stop trying to hold the boy who had sent you flying to hush that cry like a mouth wants a thumb and his heart like a drum in a marching band
Corey Leitman. Leitman. Yeah. Leitman. Like, you're late, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you grow up in Cummington? No. No. I grew up in uh, Westchester County in New York. Okay. Yeah. Um, are we starting? Yeah, it oh, started. Neat. Great. Did you even notice? No, I know. It was very seamless. It felt like we were just <laughs> continuing the conversation, which I guess is true. Um, no, I grew up in Westchester County. It, okay, so uh, what's the name of your town? Bedford. What was it like? Uh, pretty affluent, upper class. Um, my, both my parents are doctors, and they co-own a practice in Whoa. the Bronx. My dad was trained as a nephrologist, which is like a kidney doctor, has a dialysis unit. Mm -hmm. My mom's a general internist. And they, yeah, they practice in the Bronx. That's amazing. So growing up in Bedford, do you think that that town had any impact on you uh, as, a, as a person? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I always felt very uncomfortable in the culture. Um, heteronormative, kind of patriarchal environment. Okay. What time period? Uh, I was born in 88, so I, and we moved there in 92. Yeah. So I was there from, like, 92 to 2006. So wait, how old were you in 2000? Uh, how, how old were you for 9-11? Uh, 9-11, I was, I want to say 12 or 13. Do you, so being... I don't know if that's right, but that's what it feels sounds, like. I was, in eight, I was in eighth grade. Yeah. What? It, okay, mm -hmm. so very interesting, mm -hmm. such an interesting time in yeah. general, and then that happens. Um, Definitely. Being close to the city, mm -hmm. what was that impact like? Mm. Uh, yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty surreal. Um, so I remember. I remember the day it happened. The like slow trickle of those images out into the world started to happen. And you, you were know, like, in, I was in. You were in school. I was in school. Yeah, yeah, I was in. I think I remember I was in um, like Spanish class, mm -hmm. and I guess there was some there was some TV presence in the room. I remember seeing an image of the plane flying into the Twin Towers, the first plane, mm -hmm. um, and thinking that it was some kind of like spoof or joke. It just seemed, it was one of those moments uh, where what I was seeing was so horrific and absurd that mm -hmm. I, like, that it was comic to me because I didn't know how else to process it. Um, and then slowly the reality of what had happened descended, and it was like, uh, it was palpable throughout the school. Um, and kids started getting called out of classes because there were um, not plenty, but like enough kids in my school whose whose parents worked in the city and some whose parents worked in the oh, wow. Twin Towers. Oh, and wow, wow. We had at least at least one parent death in my school. Wow. Yeah, it was intense. It sounds like it was a very like kind of had like a heavy impact on your like right at the beginning of your adolescence. Yeah, you know, I don't fr I don't frame it as um, as a super formative moment for me, but I think uh, just in terms of like the cultural shift mm -hmm. um, from a culture of less uh, like concentrated fear to a culture of like very concentrated fear and mm -hmm. paranoia, um, I can't imagine that it didn't have an impact on me. Right. Yeah. For sure. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, not, I mean, not to start the interview off with 9-11. No, let's but go. Sometimes, let's, yeah, yeah, sometimes I like to mm -hmm. hear about different people's observations about it just because sure. I feel like the, the timing of that, like, horrific event in society is so interesting because mm -hmm. society had been shifting for a number of years and then that really, like, changed it to be, like, super extreme and then reality TV started to hit and mm -hmm. then I feel like society just got more and more and more aggressive mm -hmm. about and, and more divided about yes. things so 
Anyways. Absolutely. Let's yeah. get back on the ground here and um, yeah. talk about um, your family, if that's all right. Sure, yeah, that's great. Do you have siblings? I do. I'm the eldest of four. Okay. Yeah. I have a little brother who's three years younger than me, who's a comic in New York City. Whoa. Yeah, he's cool. He's about to go on a, uh, he's about to go on a tour, actually, a mental health tour. Um, he is, he has a diagnosis of schizophrenia, um, which is like super impacted my family. Great. When was he diagnosed? Uh, 2000, 2006. Can you give an yeah. overview of what that was like? Oh, geez. Yeah. An overview. Wow, how to condense this story? It's interesting. Well, we were we were uh, so there are six of us. I have a I, it's Daniel, me, Daniel, and then my two little sisters who are identical twins, oh, uh, nice. Hannah and Abigail. Yeah, they're both in nursing school right now in Boston. Um, we were on a vacation in Montreal, I want to say, and uh, he started at the time he was if I was seventeen, he was fourteen, um, and he just started uh, like exhibiting these weird physical behaviors like he was he had his hand up by his like scrunched up by his chest and was just like be behaving oddly like do you know the term uncanny valley mm -mm. um uncanny valley is like a, a an animation term that refers to like when you have the the shape and the form and the movement of a human or like a character that you're trying to animate almost right but there's just something slightly off oh, and you can't quite figure out what it is okay yeah um, uncanny so Valley. The Uncanny Valley. Okay. Yeah, I love it so much. Yeah. I feel like it's so useful. Um, that was like the the decided break. He'd been hearing voices for years, and uh, is he telling privately telling you you all about it? No, no, not until that was that was like the moment of revelation. That was the moment when he finally told my parents was during that vacation. But wow. he'd been hearing voices for a long time. So, uh, is there anything else you'd like to say about your brother? Um, I mean, there could be so much more I could yeah. say about my brother. He's but, he's also very funny. So, yeah, you is, know. was your fa is your family very funny? You have a very oh. just from talking to you mm -hmm. um, for like just a short while. You have like a very good sense of uh, sense of humor and a good a good sense of timing. Oh, thanks, buddy. You too. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> you want to go with like hit this? Let's take this show on the road. Yeah, let's take this show on the road. <laughs> yeah, vaudeville. <laughs> right. Um, so your family, uh, they funny. Uh, I, th I think they're funny. Yeah. My, you know, my mom is, uh, uh, not, uh, sorry, mom. I don't think you're that funny, but you're very cute. You're adorable. <laughs> um, my dad is very funny. I think my dad's hilarious. If not a bit callous. Yeah. We're definitely, we're a jokey family for sure. Cool. Yeah. Um, what kind of kid were you and how do you think you relate to your younger self as an adult? Mm, that's a beautiful question. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Geez, I was very performative, definitely very dramatic. I was one of those kids that liked, like, writing and staging plays with my friends, and I was always writing songs, and I think I was very dreamy and very whimsical. I liked to fantasize. I think I felt very comfortable in uh, the world of fantasy and imagination. Mm. Um, so definitely a creative kid. I was, like, a friendly kid, super relational. Like, I, that, I had buddies. shy? Um, no, I don't think I was shy. I think I was, oh, I think I've always been anxious. Mm. I think I've always been, um, I, I think I just have an anxious disposition, but I think I have so much energy that I kind of, like, use the anxiety to propel me. Right, so yeah. it sounds like your anxiety manifests into friendliness. 
yeah, right. In order to like soothe my anxiety, I soothe right. other people, right. like to make myself comfortable. Or mm-hmm. it's like it's too it's many pronged. You You're know? a very empathetic person. I try to be. I think so. Yeah, yeah I'm definitely affected by other people's yeah. moods and feelings. I yeah. think that I mean, uh, just listening to you talk about like trying to make other people feel comfortable sounds sure. like a very like caretaker, empathetic role. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. which comes sure. from anxiety. Yeah. Thanks, anxiety. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I definitely want to come back to the imagination aspect of um, you, of your personality. So um, let's not forget about that. But um, mm. I do want to talk about where music was in your life growing mm. up. Did anyone else around you play music? What kind of stuff were you hearing when you were younger that was resonating with you? Sure. Yeah. Um, my nuclear family is very unmusical. Uh, neither of my parents sing or play instruments. Um, my maternal grandfather plays piano. Uh, he plays jazz piano. And he... So I grew up with him playing a lot of standards on the piano, and he would have me sing with him. Um, so that was my one... That was my one, like, musical relationship. And I took piano lessons as a kid, too. Uh, with Jeff Miller, who's a great guy. Was that your um, first instrument, piano? Piano was my first instrument. Okay. Yeah. What inspired you to start writing your own music? Um, I don't know if there's, I don't know if anything in particular started, uh, inspired me to start writing my own music. I think it was just like a, what, the way I describe it is like, just as some kids like drawing or doodling or, um, making origami or whatever kids do, it was just like a function of who Mm -hmm. I was. I was one of those kids that would go around like narrating my life in song. (laughs) Um, so it was just, I'm just musical. Yeah, that's like the thing. What did you find performing and writing your own music was doing for your own self in terms of like how you felt it helped you or helped others around you? Mm. Um, well, I think hearkening back to an earlier, the earlier part of our conversation, we were talking about Bedford and the culture that I grew up in. It was a very like non-emotive, rational culture. Uh, as like high achieving or cultures that promote a certain kind of achievement often are Um, and I was a very sensitive kid with a lot of really big feelings like most kids are and I think what music gave me access to was um, really having a safe place to move fully into those feelings and express them in a way that felt as large as they were no and and it felt like magic to me it felt like um, like uh, it interrupted the normal flow of time and put me in this more spacious place where I was speaking with something else. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. When did you start to take music seriously? Uh, when did I start seriously? Hmm. Um, I mean, or are you taking it seriously now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm taking it seriously in in the sense that I. Um, I believe in the power of it and the, uh, the magic of it. And, um, it's, it's just like meaningful to me and it has helped me and supported me. And, uh, when did I start to take it seriously though? I don't know. I think I, I maybe started to take it seriously when people started telling me I was good. Cause I, it was something that I always enjoyed, but, uh, I remember, in high school, I had a teacher, an English teacher. His name was Mr. Horn, and we, I, I was, I supported him in 
running this event called Literary Mayhem, and uh, which was like a talent show for the mm-hmm. school. And he'd noticed that I'd recently started learning covers on the guitar and asked if I would like to collaborate. And so he gave me a poem he'd written called Florida. I was like 15 at the time, I think. Uh, and I, he asked me to set if I'd like to set it to music. And so I went home and I set it to music. And I came back in and I played it for him. Uh, and we had we'd originally planned on singing it together, mm-hmm. but after hearing me play it, he was like, "Oh, I can't. I don't want to. I can't sing that. I just need you to sing that." I would embarrass myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was that was the first moment where I was like, "Oh, maybe maybe I'm good at this." Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Man. Mm-hmm. That's so like teachers are so important. Teachers are potent. Yeah. It's a really potent role to hold an end yeah. in a kid or anyone's life. Yeah, it's yeah. so it's so wild to think about a teacher like playing that role in your life. Like they're just there to do way more than like teach you about history or to teach chorus. You know, mm-hmm. it's yeah. awesome. Yeah, they're teaching you how to be a person. Yeah, so glad you had somebody like that. Yeah, he's cool. Um, how is your relationship to performance? Like, was it always easy, uh, enjoyable, and what has that journey been like? Hmm. I'm actually a very anxious performer. I, I really don't like the uh, like the stage audience setup. There there are moments when I kind of like lean into it and feel like I can really hold the room, and it helps me to play little mental tricks. Uh, sometimes it's helpful for me, at least of late, to pretend like I'm or not to pretend. Actually, I don't think it's pretend to remind myself that music is a form of spell casting. Hmm. Uh, that I'm like in, kind of like infusing at at. At its best, it's infusing a mood into the room, like a um, an atmosphere into the room. And so, if I can remember that that's my task, right? Like then I can kind of yeah. um, not not escapism. I don't no. think just like providing a container that everyone can feel comfortable inside or Whoa. engaged inside. Hello, anxiety. Hello, anxiety. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, it informs every aspect yeah. of my life, and the more I, you know go to therapy and the more I like talk with friends about it and the more I read the more I I see how it informs every aspect of my being and that it's not um isn't it so mind-blowing it's so mind-blowing yeah it really is everywhere it just colors everything so like when you Mm -hmm. figure that out that like anxiety is informing so many aspects of your life Mm -hmm. like is what does that feel like for you or what did that feel like for you Mm, you mean like the dawning yeah, like, realization yeah, that like, oh I'm, shit, my yeah. entire life has been led by anxiety. Right, that there's this like thing that's like driving me forward in positive ways and in negative ways. Uh-huh. Gosh, how's uh, resistance, grief, anger, you know, grief at feeling like I, I'm tethered to something that doesn't give me like perfect autonomy over my decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, not like I believe in that necessarily, um, but... I feel like I just heard I a little West, Westchester accent come out. Really? Is yeah. it? I always thought of... Um, necessarily? Necessarily? <laughs> <laughs> well, also my grandparents are from uh, from Brooklyn and Queens. Oh. So so that's trickled down a little oh, bit into nice, my family language. Nice that they yeah. could show up for this interview. Yeah. Oh, hey, guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're floating about. Uh, sorry I interrupted you. No, that's okay. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... I, I don't really remember. I think it's probably hard to, like, locate, um, I don't think there is, like, a moment when I realize that my entire life has been dictated by anxiety that, like, led to some huge upheaval. I think it's been, like, it's been incremental and, um, surprising and, you know, there have been moments where I felt like I really, like, 
had it down, and mm. then always those humbling moments of realizing that, like, of course, you will never I have never it down. Will. <laughs> I, have, I have never, and I never will. So, yeah, it's it's been humbling. Yeah, it's been really humbling to realize that there are just these energies that live in me and these like ways in which I'm built that will probably always be with me and mm -hmm. you know instead of acting from a place of trying to root them out of my system instead um, learning how to be in relationship with them because they're part of me mm. you know? I like that yeah uh, also uh, to be fair I was totally projecting my experience with anxiety onto you <laughs> but thank you for I loved your answer cool um, can you talk about being part of the anti-folk scene at the Sidewalk Cafe in Brooklyn? Mm, yeah. Oh, my God. I love that that world so much. I'm actually going to play. Um, the name of the cafe is Little Skips. I'm going to play it there on June 1st with my friends. Oh, uh, awesome. Bo Alessi and... Cool. Yeah. Can you Dave first Clancy? define yeah. anti-folk? Sure. Yeah. Um, so from what I understand, the anti-folk scene was a scene born out of um, a rejection of the popular music scene that was emerging in the 60s and 70s, composed of people like, uh, you know, the people you know, like Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan, and people who wrote folk music in this, in this kind of, like, accessible style mm -hmm. um, that was melodic and lyrical and poetic and... Um, certainly they were all different from one another, but they, um, they were kind of coherent as a genre. Um, and the anti-folk movement was, was born of a bunch of people getting together whose styles of what they considered to be folk music didn't adhere to those, um, to those qualities. They were like a little bit more, uh, experimental. Mm-hmm. Fringy. Fringy, yeah. Yeah, they were weirder. It's a weird scene. So um, it's interesting that Bob Dylan was one of your examples, because don't you think that like mm -hmm. he, like embodies the anti-folk scene? Like it's hard to put him in mm -hmm. any particular world. Like yes, like he had a huge impact on that Greenwich Village scene, but mm -hmm. he ultimately like rejected it and right. and left it and pissed them all off. Right. But I think he also defined it. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's where the where, like, you have to kind of include Bob Dylan in the definition of that scene, because mm. so much of that scene was born out of an imitation of Bob Dylan. Right. You That's know, really like, true. maybe not him as a person. Right. Um, the culture of Bob Dylan. The culture of Bob Dylan. The man himself. Right. Now he's a punk. I think, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just really hard to, like, drop him in one particular world. Yeah, absolutely. But anyways. Yeah. Go on. Sorry. Uh, that's I just, a, I that's mean, okay. Was, no, it's interesting to hear your. Yeah, I I just think he like if you listen to like self portrait or the other side, another side of Bob Dylan, I mm -hmm. just feel like anti folk players would probably be like, yeah, this guy's super weird. Totally. Oh yeah, he's incredibly weird, and I think like most folk artists are incredibly weird. I think most musicians are. I think <laughs> I think people are weird, you know. Um, and anyone who's being honest in their expression is certainly weird because we're all like. I mean, this is a bizarre condition we're all in. Yeah, you know? totally. Uh, so anyways, um, anti-folk. So anti-folk scene. So uh, so I moved to New York uh, in 2011, something like that, and started looking for open mics and found this open mic that was run out of the Sidewalk Cafe in the, uh, the Lower East Side. And the Sidewalk Cafe, at the time I moved to, to New York City, had been the home of anti-folk. It was like where anti-folk landed. Mm. Um... 
and it was centered, the community was centered around this open mic that happened on Monday nights. And uh, it was just a crazy open mic. It would start at like 7 p.m. and go regularly until like the wee hours of the morning. Wow. And not even so <laughs> wee, sometimes like, you know, four or five. Maybe I'm making that up. Maybe it's like a little grander in my, in my recollection than it was in reality. But it was pretty, it was pretty grand. Um, yeah, it was just, the way I experienced it was as this intergenerational family of people who like the rule was support you know like everyone who got up on the stage and did something anything was respected for that act alone Mm -hmm. and that was like the baseline attitude of that group of people and I fell in love and was adopted Mm -hmm. and started playing shows on bills with the people who frequented that scene all of whom were were brilliant and also flourished under, like, the loving gaze of the community. Mm -hmm. And it was definitely where I came of age um, as a musician. You know, I was so... I felt so loved and seen and supported by by the people in that community. Yeah, it was really rad. Yeah, I was so lucky. Mm -hmm. You were formally recording under the name Rachel Laitman? That's right, yeah. Uh, Where did Corey come from? Um, Corey... So Rachel's my birth name, uh, and I have a f- I have a fine relationship with it. Uh, I think it's a very pretty name. It's also very feminizing. And uh, when I moved to Western Mass, or a couple years after I moved to Western Mass, I started working at this respite. It's a peer respite, and it's called a fia. And uh, what is what is that? A peer respite. So the this is a much longer conversation, but the <laughs> the, the peer model of uh, of mental health, of, you know, the, the approach to mental, to, like, talking about and being with issues of mental health, um, and the way that operates on the level of a respite is just, like, the way, the way I like to describe it is that it's, uh, it's an alternative for people who are going through a really difficult time and are in really extreme emotional states who don't want to encounter people who are going to pathologize them, take away their sharp objects, um, hospitalize them if they talk about wanting to die, um, be freaked out by them if they're having experiences outside of consensus reality, like hearing voices or seeing visions. We have a very limited idea of what those things mean in this culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the respite is basically like a, like a safe place for people who are having a really, a really hard time um, in one way or another. Uh, where they could come and stay for a week. There are three bedrooms in the house. And uh, hang around people who who can hold conversation topics like that. You know, mm-hmm. and who, who won't judge them and who will be kind to them. And they have total autonomy. They can go to work. There's no, like, schedule or groups. It's it's like anti-clinical. Mm-hmm. It's like... Like uh, it's like the, or something? Uh, I mean, people definitely prescri- uh, subscribe to homeopathic ways of treatment that like who came to stay there but um there's no like uniting philosophy um aside from just like being aware of different kinds of of oppression mm-hmm. yeah wow. and working to working to address those those issues yeah that's kind of it's hard to it's hard to give an overview and i'm a right. little bit out of practice because i haven't been working there in a while but it was it was a really amazing place to work anyway um, there were a bunch of people there who 
were like deeper into the trans conversation and like knew uh, who identified as trans. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was there that I met the first people who identified as trans non-binary. And I remember meeting the first person um, who I'd ever met who identified as trans non-binary and they used they them pronouns and um, it felt like getting hit by a truck. Uh, in a good way. I was like, oh, sh- oh shit, I don't have to identify as being a girl. I-, I don't have to identify as being a boy either. Like, there's a third option. And, you know, since I've learned that there are actually infinite options and that gender's, like, totally made up. But I, I remember, like, encountering that possibility and just, like, freaking out. Because um, I've, never, I've never felt aligned with a uh, female gender. That's been a thing since I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. And I met a bunch of people who had changed their names to something less feminizing and more gender neutral. And I tried to add a bunch of different names, and Corey was the one that stuck. It's a good name. Yeah, I really like it a, lo- a lot. It means a dweller in or near a hollow. Yeah, it does. Isn't that fucking cool? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how has this transition been for you? Everything. Yeah. It's been euphoric. It's been annihilating and everything in between. Wow. Mm-hmm. I saw a video of you working with a high school band. Yeah. And um, they're adorable. I know. And, like Ugh. so many different colors hair. Yeah, and I know. Their, their instruments are so good. Mm-hmm. And there's some coming on screen, uh, like talking about you. And I was mm-hmm. like, what pronouns are they going to use? And then one student used they and their. And I was like, oh, awesome. Uh-huh. How do you find people in general as you like move through the world at using as using your correct pronouns Mm -hmm. um i think that so in western massachusetts in the pocket of the world that i live in the conversation around pronouns is uh like part of the vernacular Mm -hmm. you know it's integrated into the way people talk around here and is part of our common language and so i'm spoiled in that sense because people won't automatically assume, you know, mm-hmm. I'm still, I'm like, I'm not on testosterone and I dress in all kinds of different ways. Um, but, uh, once I leave this context, I am she heard, which I think bothered me at first because, because of a lot of reasons, you know, I was just, I was at the beginning of a learning curve about a lot of the different, about all the different ways that gender operates in the world. And I think I was just really pissed off. Um, but now, like a year and change later, I'm softening again, and the material's kind of integrating, and like, of course people are gonna refer to me as she and her, you know? I, if I'm gonna fall, if I'm gonna drop easily into one of two categories, that's the category that I'm gonna drop into in their mind, and, and that's fine, you know? That's, I mean, it isn't, it isn't, right? But I can't, um... Uh, I don't know. I, it's, it's too hard for me personally, uh, to be in such like an adversarial relationship with Mm. so much of the world. Like it's, it's not, it's not worth it to me. If they want to have the conversation, I'll have the conversation with them, but I'm not that kind of, um, do you correct people? Um, occasionally I will. Occasionally I will. If I feel safe, read the room. Yeah. Read the room. Read the room. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't all the time though. No. Yeah, so uh, we were talking, and I just moved back to Massachusetts, um, Mm -hmm. and I'm from Massachusetts. I went to Emerson College, Mm -hmm. and that's actually where I work now. Mm. And I lived in Pittsburgh in Western Western PA Mm -hmm. um, for 11 years. I don't know if you've ever been 
to Pittsburgh or not. I haven't. It's pretty cool, but it was like barely a topic that would mm-hmm. come up. Like, right. There was a theater near my house that had like non-gendered bathrooms that I was like, whoa, this is amazing. Right. I like took a picture of it and like <laughs> put it on my Instagram being like, look guys, go to the Kelly Strayhorn. You don't have to pick a gender. You could just, Fuck you know, yeah. but like that was it. And I had a, um, a friend and coworker who had many like non-binary friends, but it was all mm-hmm. kind of like underground, you know, yep. but then moving back to Massachusetts and especially working at Emerson, mm-hmm. it's really common for people to ask other people their pronouns and see mm-hmm. gender neutral bathrooms and then have yep. people in their email signature, like put their pronouns. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just pretty awesome to see yeah. the progression in Massachusetts. And it's, it's also great because like Massachusetts is basically like always like 17 steps ahead of the rest of the country mm-hmm. when it comes to this kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. like, this is, you know, this is what's to come totally. and, it, and it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to, um, going back to this topic. Um, so from your pictures online, your outward image formerly presented very female, but that has since changed and you told us that story mm-hmm. and now your clothing in particular is different than it once was mm-hmm. like you wear a lot of suspenders you wear a lot of like androgynous clothing mm-hmm. um can you talk about maybe how you used to view your clothing choices versus how you view them now mm. oh my god yes i can <laughs> uh Gosh, I was just having a conversation with my partner about this and with a group of folks who I hang out with on a weekly basis. So I think that most people who are uh, assigned female grow up with uh, an awareness of how they are sexually attractive to men. And that was definitely true for me. You know, I'm I'm just beginning to dig into my own relationship with what, I don't know if I'm just beginning, but it kind of always feels like I'm just beginning to understand how much that impacted me and, you know, among other things, my clothing choices. Like ha- like body I mean, hair, too, and like makeup and hair choices. Yeah, I mean, I've been through so many different phases with that. Like in high school, I would like straighten my hair with a straightening iron and uh, I was an athlete, uh, so I had, like, this very small, muscled body and um, would wear belly shirts and, like, baggy pants. I don't know. I've always had a weird relationship with clothing. It's like 2002, you know? Yeah, very, <laughs> with, like, little jokers yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Avril Lavigne. It's so Avril. Oh, my God. I loved Avril. Yeah. She's got a great voice. Yeah. I don't know. I think I've always been a little clothing confused and I continue to be a little clothing confused. But one thing that's very clear to me is, uh, the way socialization plays into, uh, or at least played into my clothing choices. And I think to some degree plays into everybody's clothing choices, especially if, you know, if we're talking about being in a place where you haven't interrogated gender at all. Um, I remember the first time... Wait, can you explain interrogated gender real quick? Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, just, like, thought about the role of gender in your life. Like, we were talking about anxiety before and how mm-hmm. anxiety, like, once you realize it's there, you realize that it's informed every decision you've oh, ever yeah. made and every, like, way you've ever been. Mm-hmm. I feel like gender is very similar to that. Oh, okay. Like, it's, it's fingers are just in everything. I remember the first time that I went 
clothing shopping specifically for boys' clothes, for men's clothes. Um, I was I went to the Salvation Army in Hadley with my partner, and when was this? Uh, this was like a year and a half ago. Okay. And I I remember having this experience of seeing in such a stark way the difference between the men's clothing section and the women's clothing section. Like there's so much more ornamentation and variety and so much more emphasis on like on like like boobs and stomach and like you could just see how women's clothing is designed to like accentuate and elevate different parts of like to show off different parts of the female form mm-hmm. um, in these like very particular ways that are tailored toward like I don't know like celebrating a certain kind of body you know like a like a thin body um, and like the men's clothing section was so simple it was such a relief to just be like, this is a shirt and these are shorts. And I'm just going to put them on my body and like not think about it that much. Um, <laughs> it was like, it was like a miracle, you know? I mean, I feel like this conversation kind of ties into relationship with food and relationship with body image and really with, with everything. It's tendrils are just so like ever present. But I was telling a story yesterday about going to the beach dressed in like cargo shorts and a polo shirt for the first time kind of like trying out this new wardrobe and I was walking on the beach and I sat down on a rock and I felt so calm like looking at the waves and like hearing the the crash of the water against the rocks and there's there were some gulls hovering nearby and I just remember like my body feeling relaxed in a way that felt unfamiliar and I realized that it was because I was not holding in my stomach for like the first time on a beach. I wasn't holding in my stomach. Mm. So that was impactful. Yeah, I feel like oh. I, can't, I can't talk about <laughs> clothing without talking about, uh, especially like my journey with clothing without talking about female socialization, without talking about body image, without talking about food, mm. without talking about like... Um, misogyny, right? So male gaze, and yeah, your relationship with your body has changed. Uh, yeah, definitely. Is is it? Yeah. How is it now? Better? Considerably, yeah. I mean, it's still not perfect. Um, I have a history of uh, anorexia and and overexercising, and yeah, I I feel like during the period of time when I was really in it, I just like grooved those neural pathways down in such a way that I don't think that is ever going to leave me. I think it's always going to be like anxiety. It's always just going to be part of the way that I'm built, but I have a much gentler relationship with, um, all of that now. I mean, I still have some like restrictive tendencies and I like to exercise. Um, and sometimes I feel anxious about like going a couple of days without exercising. Like Mm -hmm. I still am conscious of weight um, so I don't feel totally liberated, and I would be surprised if I ever, like, become totally liberated from any thoughts or, like, obsessive thinking about that. I don't know. I, don't know. I, I actually do feel kind of liberated from obsessive thinking about it, because it used to be, like, every waking moment was tailored around, Oof. was tailored around food. Wow. Um, I can say that it does not direct my life anymore. So... I am like significantly healed for sure and I then the gender journey has definitely been a part of that. Wow. Yeah. 
Also, your recent imagery online and on your album artwork features yeah. you in nature with these like really cute comic book drawings <laughs> of like wings and mm -hmm. Robin Hood type of a hat, like yeah. kind of giving off the impression that you have a very vivid imagination. Um, yeah. So what is your history with imagination, particularly mixed with nature, and why is it important for people to know that about you with mm. these images. Lovely, yeah. Well, th those those images are images from the tarot, from the Rider Waite tarot deck. Um, do you know? Do you have a relationship with tarot? No. No. <laughs> do you know what tarot is? Yeah. Okay. Cool. It's um, like they're reading your fortune. Kind of. Yeah. It's definitely it's like, like reading a person's image or whatever. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I think the the way that I understand it is sort of like a it's like a Rorschach test. Uh, or not not a test, but it's just, um, it's a way for me of, like, being in relationship with the way that I'm thinking or with what's happening in my life in a kind of, like, guided encounter. But yeah, the, the image that shows up on the on the cover of the album, all of the artwork was done by Micah Mathias, who is an excellent cartoon artist and also my partner. And uh, the image that he chose to superimpose on that one photo of me is the the fool the archetype of the fool oh, with the hat and with the, the hat little dog yeah the fool uh which is the first <laughs> card in the series of what are called the major arcana cards which are kind of like the big sweeping archetypes representations in the tarot deck so i just wanted to credit him and talk a little bit about what he was thinking there uh i like that yeah yeah, I like it too. Um, my imagination in nature. I grew up on what had been a pine tree farm, like a like a Christmas tree mm. farm. So I grew up with a lot of really in amazing in Bedford. Okay. Yeah, I so I grew up with a lot of really amazing trees on my property um, or my parents' property. Yeah, I definitely encountered a lot of wonder and whimsy and spaciousness and uh, solitude, like privacy. I think my, my first experiences of, you know, the magic that happens in the, in the kind of, like, psychic space of solitude happened in nature. And so I'm sure that connection has followed me. I'm sure that that experience was formative. Yeah, I just think nature is super brilliant, you know? And it's, like, I feel like it's really easy the way that the world is set up to forget that our bodies and our minds are not separate from that brilliance that like we are also nature we also count um and so um i have a lot of friends around here i don't know if you're aware of this yet but there's like a glut of herbalists in western massachusetts mm. and people who mm -hmm. are really into foraging for wild edibles and uh you know people who are really into these practices and i've learned a lot particularly from my friend carly loosner who uh has a a wild food CSA called Acorn Kitchen, and it was just totally, totally brilliant. Ooh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, she's fascinating. Yeah. Is she a, a chef, too? She is a chef. Does she do, yeah. uh, like, dinners where you can eat wild? You know, she food. does. Yeah. yeah. She, she hosts Could you put me on her walks? mailing list? <laughs> I totally could. Yeah, I absolutely will. Yeah, I absolutely will. Yeah, she's she's really, really engaging and tells these amazing stories about the intelligence of plants and um, how we have evolved, how like the human organism has evolved in relationship 
to uh, to plants. Wow. You know, and we're divorced from that at this point in yeah. our development because of obvious reasons. You know. Right. But even like thinking about the basics of what you learn in school, like we uh -huh. breathe out carbon dioxide and we breathe in oxygen, oxygen. And trees do the exact opposite yeah we're in totally totally intimate in a relationship. relationship yeah we're in a relationship yeah and it's it's totally like it's so sad that we're so alienated from the fact of that mm -hmm. you know like mm -hmm. we don't think about that or like we're not encouraged to think about right. that anyway most of the time so um i want to talk about your voice um, it has this quality that feels like so transportive. There's like a feeling mm. of like youth, nostalgia, and that sense of imagination. And also cool. there's this like really intense vulnerability mm. about your voice, mm. um, particularly in, um, what's the first track called? March Marching Band. Marching Band. Yeah. Where you like, you're singing in your this beautiful voice and then all of a sudden you take it up to like the upper register mm. and it feels like it almost to me feels like when I first was listening to it I'm like I feel so uncomfortable but also very comfortable you know like I don't know if you if you share that feeling of like that vulnerability your voice has but what is your relationship to your voice mm. and like do you try to like cultivate any of what I just mentioned into it Oh, wow. That's such a good question. Thank you for that <laughs> reflection. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know that I actively try to cultivate vulnerability in my singing, but I do try to embody the songs honestly. The only stuff that I write that I like is vulnerable. You know, I'm at a point right now where I could just, like, pop out a song where I could, like, just write, like, verse, verse, chorus verse, bridge, chorus, you know, I can do that. Um, it's not an interesting like exercise. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I think the music that I've always been the most compelled by has been music that is like what you just described, you know, mm. like music that has a lot of pain in it and a lot of beauty. Mm. Um, do you know, do you know Martin Prechtel? Mm -mm. He's this, uh, Guatemalan fellow who identifies as a, as a shaman, but I'm not going to talk about that because I don't know how to talk about that. Um, but he has this talk called Grief and Praise, where he talks about how grief and praise are so interwoven. Mm. They're like the same, they're like different expressions of the same feeling. Um, and I really resonate with yeah. that idea. Yeah, that like grief of... is praise for the thing you've lost and praise is you would, grief for the you thing you have. You would like clutch your chest if you were expressing either to somebody. Yes. Yeah, like true grief and true praise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. So that's like the place, that's the vulnerability. Weird. Super weird. Super weird. Um, <laughs> cool. Um, all right, so we're going to take a break, and okay. then we'll do the lightning round, which you don't know about. Whoa. But you're going to be, you're going you're gonna to love it. Cool. Right. Is that cool? Yeah, it's great. All right, we'll be right back. Basic Folk receives support from McDean, songwriters who love each other. McDean would be delighted to send you a free CD of their first EP, The Sampler Plate. Email lin at mcdean.co, lin at mcdean.co to get one. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday 
You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, wiupfm.org. Corey Laitman, are you ready for the lightning round? I guess. Oh, yes. Um, so this is, you just give me one word answers or a sentence or two if you want to expand. Okay. A little bit. Okay. Here we go. Um, what is your favorite U.S. city? Oh, darn. Northampton. Dogs, cats, or something else? Both. Wow. What is your coffee order? Dark roast. Cream. First album you bought with your own money? Uh, don't remember the name of it. Nico Case. Blacklisted? Yeah, that's it. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, first concert? Elton John. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Did your mom take you? Sure did. Wow. That's a, that sounds like a classic mom move. Yeah. Um, do you listen to podcasts? Yes. What was the last one you listened to that you loved? Um, pleasure Activism. Um, Healing Justice podcast. Cool. Yeah. Um, what is your dream collaboration? Dream collaboration. Mm. I'm really jealous of Phoebe Bridges and Connor Oberst. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you like peanut butter? Sure do. Smooth or chunky? Chunky. Beach or mountains? Beach. Gibson or Martin or Fender? Fender. Flying or invisibility? Flying. What is a random fact I might not know? I have a moon tattoo on my back. It's a good one. All right, that's it. Awesome. You did well. Well, thank you. All right, yeah. Corey Leitman, thank you so much for, for participating in the lightning round and for being on Basic Folk. Yeah, thank you so much for the conversation. It was awesome. You can find Corey Laitman's debut album, Seafoam, out everywhere. came out last year. It's really lovely to listen. I hope you do check it out. Uh, Corey, very special human. So glad to be connected to them uh, and, and hope to catch them live sometime in the future. And uh, you as well. You can check out show notes at cindyhouse.net. Laura McCarthy produces Basic Folk. Uh, Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. I'm Cindy Howes. You can subscribe to the Basic Folk newsletter at my website, cindyhouse.net. You can also sign up for our Facebook group, Basic Folk Basics. And we will talk to you next week. All right. Thanks for making it all the way to the end. You're a real pal. Okay. Bye.